Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 9. That'll be our sermon text this morning. And as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word today. Revelation 9, verses 1 to 21. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air, the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke uh, from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And a voice, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpets, the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask him to help us understand his word rightly this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word once again. Thank you even for books like the book of Revelation within your word that at times we can find difficult to understand and sometimes even hard to read. And so as any portion of Scripture, even so this one as well, we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit. Teach us your word this morning. Uh, Work in us 
that we might, uh, by your Spirit, have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your Word. We pray that you would uh, teach us, that you would uh, rebuke us where needed, correct us where needed, and uh, renew our minds, help us to be renewed, renewed in our minds and transformed in our lives, because we spent this time here in your Word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, I almost feel like every time we get into these chapters, especially in this section, this portion, middle, the middle half, so to speak, of of the book of Revelation, it's it's helpful to kind of uh, backtrack a little bit, to give a little bit of an overview of sorts, to get to remind ourselves of a few things that we need to keep in mind as we read this book. And the first thing is, and I know I've said it in previous weeks, and I'll probably end up saying it again, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, you're following him, the things written in these chapters, which are very difficult to read, they can be very frightening, the imagery, they can be very alarming in some ways, and being alarmed sometimes isn't a bad thing. Remember the book of Joel we just read earlier in the service this morning, Joel chapter 2, God tells them, sound the alarm. It's not always a bad thing to be alarmed, but these things are not written to frighten believers in Christ. What is what is the main purpose of the book of Revelation when it comes to believers in Christ. What is it What is it intended to do? It's intended to equip you, to get you ready. It's intended to comfort you. And so if you're reading the book of Revelation, if you're listening as I'm reading it and preaching through it, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be, that your main thing should not to be frightened by it. If you're frightened and alarmed by it, uh, we're either reading it wrong or I'm preaching it wrong or somebody's doing something wrong. That's not its intention as it comes to believers. If you're not a believer in Christ and you're alarmed, maybe that's with good reason as we go through this book. The second thing is, and we've said it before, it has been said that the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book, but a picture book. And I think that's also something helpful to keep in mind. Not that you don't want to get into and look into and try to discern what the different symbols mean. There's certainly uh, room and place for that. But it's not a puzzle to be solved. Just like you don't want to think of, of any of Scripture as being trivial or just something that's interesting to know and to talk about, uh, we also don't want to look at Revelation like it's a puzzle to be to be solved, like a Rubik's Cube that what you know once we solve it, the main application is satisfaction in having solved it. Sometimes that's how we approach this book. Sometimes it's how well-meaning Christians approach uh, all the books of prophecy in the Bible, whether in the Old or the New Testament, and we don't want to make that mistake. Now, it's it's not there for us to just be interested in or, or to be curious about or to solve. It's there to, to, to cause us uh, to trust in Christ more. It's there to tell us how to live for him and our generation, how to serve him, and how to understand his ways in history. Another thing to think about in Revelation, and especially in this chapter, what is it talking about? What I mean by that is, is it talking about, some people say, well, most of what's in Revelation is about the distant past. There are a great many, even Reformed believers, who would say that most of Revelation is about A.D. 70, that even this chapter in particular is mostly about something that happened almost 2,000 years ago when the Roman army came in and destroyed Jerusalem and, and, and leveled the temple. Now, is it about that? Is that one of the things that it's possibly about? Certainly. Is it only about that? No. 
If it's only about that, then this really is just for curiosity's sake. Then it becomes just an interesting thing to read and understand with very little application for us. And that's not what the Bible was given for us for. Likewise, on the other side of the coin or the other extreme, some say that this is all about not the distant past, but it's all about the distant what? Future. Something far off in the future that really has no application to us as well. Both of those, in my opinion, in my view, are wrong. Now, does it have to do with the past? Certainly. Does it have to do with the future? Certainly. But is there application for it for us right now for the present? Yes. Otherwise, we're wasting our time sitting here reading it and going through this book. Now, our chapter, chapter 9, deals with, if you've been following along, the blowing of the fifth and sixth trumpets. Remember how many trumpets are there? It's the main number in Revelation. There's seven. We've already seen in the previous chapter the first four, and then there's a break. You know, these cycles in Revelation, they repeat themselves. That's why they're called cycles, right? Remember the first, the seal, the seven seals we saw earlier in the book, they went through the first four, and then there was a break. And they went through the last three. They were separated in that way. The same thing goes with these trumpets. You're going to see later on in future chapters, the same thing, the same kind of pattern is going to follow with the seven bowls. The seven bowls of God's wrath and judgment being poured out. So in our chapter, we're going to see the fifth and the sixth trumpets being sounded first. And each one of those uh, ushers in one of these three woes that was spoken of in the last verse of chapter Eight. In chapter 8, verse 13, it says, John says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three, the three angels are about to blow. And so at the end of chapter 8, we're kind of prepared that something greater is about to happen, something more terrible is about uh, to happen in God's judgments. And that's what we're going to see the first two of here in chapter 9. Now, one of the things that, that we should keep in mind from reading this chapter and really the whole book, is, as, as scary as some of this imagery may be, as frightening and disturbing as it may be, who's in control of every last bit of it? Remember in, in Joel chapter 2, who sent the locusts? In fact, who calls them his army twice in that text? God. They weren't an accident. They weren't God letting one slip and letting it go through the cracks. God sent those locusts. God also is sending this vision of locusts and what they represent in our text. After all, what happened? When do things happen in our chapter? When the angel sounds the trumpet that God gave them. So what does that mean? No matter how things get, no matter how bad things may look at times throughout the history of God's workings on this earth, Who's sovereignly in control of all of it? God is. That is meant to be a comfort for us as his people. It may seem out of control at times. It may seem like our country is spiraling out of control at times. And in some ways it is, but in, in better ways it's not. God is sovereignly in control of all things. Let's look at the fifth trumpet, the first thing in our text in verses 1 through 12. The fifth trumpet of the angel, the fifth angel blowing his trumpet what is What happens when the angel blows the fifth trumpet? It says, when the fifth trump, the angel blew the, his trumpet, the fifth angel, I saw a star falling from heaven, verse 1, to earth. And he was given the key 
to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. It kind of reminds you of Joel chapter 2. The sun was blotted out by the smoke. Like in Joel 2, the sun was blotted out by this cloud of locusts that was, you know, we can't even hardly imagine what that would have looked like. And then it says, from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. What are these lo- Remember, Revelation is a series of visions. And in, in, a, in a sense, what you would say is, they're visions that teach a literal truth in a symbolic way. Are the, is this vision of locusts meant to teach that there's going to be this demonic plague of, plague of locusts on the earth at some point in God's judgments? No. Has God used locusts, literal locusts, in the past as an act of judgment? Yes, more than once. Not just Joel. Where, when else do you think of locusts? You probably think of locusts in the Exodus. It, it's something God has used in the past, and he's using that imagery here to teach us something greater, in a sense, maybe even something more terrible than those things have happened in the Old Testament. So this vision of locusts is not a, a meant to teach us that they're literal locusts. And at this point, I, I'll try not to belabor this point too much, but it also is not a vision of cobra helicopters. That is a very common dispensational view of this. Uh, that That is a wrong way of looking at Revelation. And what what, what that is is, you know, dispensationalists and maybe some others, what they'll say is, and I find this to be unintentionally, of course, insulting to the apostles and John in particular. They say that this is what happened, that this is what they pictured the revelation being like. It's as if John the apostle, uh, as if God took a video, it's movie night, God took a video or Jesus took a video of the future and put it on a big screen for John. And John was sitting there and having this vision and, you know, John, this is, I'm being facetious, John's a dumb caveman. He's never seen a Cobra helicopter. So John sees this vision of helicopters and says, oh, oh he runs away and, you know, lights a, a torch and runs into his cave. No. It, it, so he sees that and he says, oh, I don't know what that is. It looks like a locust with women's hair and breastplates of iron. You know, No, that's not what God is doing. John was not a moron. John was not a caveman. Jesus gave him a vision in the form of a vision of locusts. And John knew, and we are to know, that that vision of locusts, even by the description, you know they're not real locusts. You know that you're not going to see something that actually looks like that happen on the earth. That's not the point. The point is, God is sending something terrible in a, in a day of judgment that is like those locusts. And there's a lot of clues in the text, aren't there? What did the locusts in Joel 2 destroy? They destroyed what locusts typically destroy. They destroyed all the plants, all the vines, all the grain, all the food. They eat things. And they wiped everything out. What are they told not to touch here in the text? Verse 4. They're, they're being commanded, these, these locusts, these visionary locusts, it says, they were told, verse 4, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's what they do. That's what a locust does. So 
What kind of locust is there that doesn't eat the grass and the tree and the plants of the field? It must be an awfully special kind of locust. But look, look who their target is. Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, in uh, in disagreement with my dispensational brothers, uh, who sometimes will talk in these scary terms about having an actual mark on your forehead, literally, that is not what this is about. In the previous chapter, what remember the chapter with the one hundred forty four thousand? What what was the angel told to do? Put the mark, the seal of God, on the foreheads of the entire church militant. It's not a visible mark that we are to look for. That would be great. Wouldn't it? You'd know who the elect are if you had spiritual uh, goggles and you could walk up and say, oh, so-and-so, I've got the right goggles on. So-and-so's got the mark on their head. They're a genuine Christian. So-and-so doesn't. Sorry, you can't join our church. Uh, it's been nice knowing you. Have fun. No. Uh, the seal of God is the protection of God. It's the mark of God's ownership over his people. Not what, but who is the seal of God that's upon you if you're a Christian? The Holy Spirit. Has sealed you, the Bible says, for the day of redemption, so that nothing, Paul says, can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death. Not, not nakedness, danger, famine, sword, all those things that are real things in this life. Nothing that happens to you in this life, whether it be persecution, whether it be martyrdom, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you have the seal of God upon you, the Holy Spirit dwelling Within you, and so who is the target of these these locusts in this vision? Those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads, the wicked, those who are persecuting God's people. And so you see that what what are these locusts? How are we to understand this locust plague, this first woe? What is a woe? It's a strange word we don't use very often. When you read the Old Testament prophets. When you read Isaiah, and Isaiah had that vision, again, a vision of God's holiness, what did he do? He said, woe is me, in the old King James, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a dead man walking. A woe is a prophetic utterance of judgment and destruction. It's, it's, it's God is about, the axe is about to fall. God is, when God pronounces a woe through his prophet, Isaiah, the prophet, pronounced a woe upon himself. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I'm a dead man walking. The only thing he could imagine was God was about to judge him, and yet what did God do? The the seraphim took a coal from the altar, touched his lips. Your sin has been atoned for. And then what did he do? God says, who am I going to send? And he said, here am I, send me. My sin's been atoned for. My dirty mouth has been atoned for. I can serve the Lord as his prophet after after that, a woe is, an, is a, pro, a pronouncement of judgment by God. You have Jesus saying, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. Jesus was talking like a prophet because he was the prophet like Moses. And he was pronouncing a woe of judgment upon those people, those unbelieving, the unbelieving Jews, Jewish rulers in his day, those who plotted his death. They were going to be judged and they were judged. So what are these locusts? Where are they from in the vision? You know more about Revelation than you think you do. You over, we overthink it. We get ourselves tied into a pretzel. What does the vision tell you? What, what is, what's the, what's the picture that John paints? 
Remember the key to what? The bottomless pit, what comes out of the pit, smoke that blackens out the whole sky and these locusts come pouring out. They're from the pit. And who's their, who's their king? He, he gives you in the Hebrew and the Greek. Now you know three different languages. He says, Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon, the destroyer in Greek. It's the devil himself. These are demonic forces sent to torment the wicked. Now, that's not a normal condition, right, throughout history, but it does happen. Sometimes, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about God doing this kind of a thing. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes this. This is the, the normal condition of mankind in unbelief. This is what it, this is what every person, including you and I, before we came to Christ, this, this is, remember the, remember the show, if you're old enough like me, this is your life. This was Paul saying, this was your life. He says, and you, in the past, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan himself, the spirit, he says, who, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How is it that anyone is ever saved then? The sons of disobedience, children of wrath, following after the prince of the power of the air, your own flesh and the world. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Drew us to faith. And Christ gave us faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. So every every human being in this world outside of Christ, that's a description of them. Dead in sin and trespass. A slave to the world, a slave to their own flesh, enslaved to the devil himself, unless God in his mercy comes down and makes them alive together with Christ, but sometimes, sometimes it goes beyond just the plain old, as bad as that is, dead in sin. Sometimes God gives people over. Do you know that? The Bible says that God gives people over to wickedness because of their unbelief. <laughs> Romans 1. Three times in Romans 1, you'll find the phrase, God gave them up or God gave them over because of idolatry. He gives them over because of idolatry and unbelief and wickedness to even further wickedness and unbelief. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, you'll find those, those phrases three, that phrase three times. He says in Romans, uh, Romans 1, uh, 24 and 25, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, or the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. When, when God, people want to give up God, God sometimes gives them over to a depraved mind to do things they should not do. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses seven to twelve. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because what? They refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, here it is, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false or believe the lie in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God at times throughout history has and still does gives individual people over and sometimes gives a whole people over, a whole land over, uh, notwithstanding his own remnant within that land, to wickedness and unbelief that it's hard to even comprehend at times. You know, think about some of the things that you see in this world, even in our own day, in our own country. There are things that are being approved of and committed in our land that 40 years ago you would not have believed if you had been told. If someone were to tell you that that perversion on a scale, it's hard to even, you don't even want to mention it in polite conversation in a church, would be not only being practiced openly, it would be protected by our government, promoted within our churches, even reformed churches. You would have been boggled. It would have boggled your mind. If you would have been told that certain restaurant chains whose owners profess Christ would be attacked because of their stance on homosexuality and marriage, for instance. You never would have believed that 20 years ago, maybe, 25 years ago. And yet that's, what, that's where we are. In, in my own home state of Pennsylvania, we've had just this past week or so, we've had a, a member of the House of Representatives of our state, of my former state, basically harass an old woman and her teenage daughters for doing nothing but praying outside of an abortion clinic. He harassed them, filmed it, posted it to the internet, and to be honest, all I could think of was this kind of a passage. What explains that kind of action? Harassing somebody who, they didn't carry signs, they weren't shouting it, they weren't blocking the door, all they were doing was what? Praying. Praying for God's honor, for life to be preserved, for people not to commit murder of the unborn. And they're harassed by it. What's the source of that? Nothing, that, nothing earthly. The source of that kind of thing is hatred uh, from the devil himself. That is, an in, that is an evidence of this kind of thing being at work. That's where this kind of, this, this chapter in Revelation is meant to tell us, among other things, how to understand in some ways what happens around us from time to time in history. So this fifth trumpet in verses 1 through 12, it's, it's showing what happens to a people, uh, and has happened in the past, it will happen again in the future when God at times gives them over to some kind of demonic judgment. The influence, the demonic influence upon a land and upon a people and upon a place. That's what this, cha- this part of our chapter is talking about. Those locust plague. And it says in verse uh, 12, the first woe has passed, behold, two more, or two woes, are still to come. That brings us to the sixth trumpet, the angel blowing the sixth trumpet in verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying, To the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. What does that tell you? God had set the day down to the day of judgment. It was perfectly in the plan and decree of God. Uh, We're released to do what? To kill a third of mankind. 
the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Uh, there's different ways of translating that. Uh, John says, I heard their number. It's 200 million. 200 million. Now, some have tried to pinpoint this as a historical reality of actual men, troops. And so what country has enough people, do you think, that could have? They'll say, well, it's China. China has, you know, a billion, however many people they have. And so China could do this literally. That We're looking at it wrong. 200 million is supposed to be a number that boggles your mind. There is no earthly nation in history, in the past or even in the future, that can muster 200 million chariots or horse, you know, horsemen. It, nobody has that many people on that kind of a button. That's not what it's talking about. But it is, it is a picture of war. And it's a picture, it's meant to be ratcheting it up. Remember the swarm, the locusts in the previous part of the chapter? That black out the sun? Well, this, this is an army that if it were in the, in the air would black out the sun. It's, it's an unimaginable force. It's meant to be looked at as upon a force. It's a force that can't be stopped. It can't be successfully resisted or overcome. That is what he's talking about. It's talking about, and he mentions, look at verse 18, by these three plagues, remember the, the, the imagery of what comes out of the horse's mouth, the brimstone and all these things, uh, sulfur. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now, a third of mankind, in the previous chapters, it was a fourth of mankind. These, these cycles of visions it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It goes from a fourth to now it's a third. Now, how are these third of mankind killed? Are they literally killed by sulfur coming out of a horse's mouth? No. We're not supposed to look for these kinds of weird-looking horses. We are to see these things as kind of like the four horsemen in the previous chapters. What, what did the four horsemen represent? Do you remember? Violence, war, plague, pestilence, and famine. Same kinds of things. God, you know, when, when war breaks out, now I'm, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not old enough to remember World War I and World War II other than the history books, although we have some in our midst who know full well from experience about those things. You know, what did they call World War I? They were wrong. The war to do what? To end all wars. Why did they say that? Because, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but millions of people died. Like, we can't even comprehend that. They thought this, this has got to be the worst conflagration in humanity's history that nothing else can top it and then a generation later they topped it. What explains that? What explains wars and famines and all these hostilities between nations that result in no good thing but millions of people dying? Where does it come from? The the pit of hell. And it's a judgment in a sense. It's a judgment from God. Now, think about how bad those two things are. Think about that, that demonic plague in the first half of the chapter and how awful that sounds. And the, the result of it, it's hard to even fathom. It's, it talks about people wanting to die and death fleeing from them. That's how bad their torment was and is. And then you have a third of mankind, it says twice in the chapter, being killed as a result of these things, the sixth angel blowing his trumpet of judgment. But look at verses 20 to 21. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed, you know, the two-thirds who made the cut, so to speak, by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, 
nor give up worshiping demons. Where does, where does false worship and idolatry, what is, it, what is it really when you take its mask off? What are they worshiping? Demons, not God. Worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which, it's like the Old Testament prophets, which cannot see or hear or walk. They worship powerless things. They worship things they have to make with their own hands. What foolishness is that? And it says, nor did they repent, verse 21, of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You know, if you read Revelation, rather, chapter 9, there's a lot of, like we've said, disturbing, frightening imagery. You know, if you were to try to portray it in a painting or, or, you know, graphic design somehow, it would be scary looking. It would frighten the kids. We couldn't have it in church. You'd have to show it somewhere else. It, It would be disturbing. But the most frightening thing in the whole chapter is the last two verses. If you look at this chapter, Roddy, that the scariest thing in Revelation 9 is verses 20 and 21, because the, the, rem, the, the two-thirds that's left of humanity in this vision, that's seen all these things, they've, they've experienced and seen this demonic oppression and torment for five months, which is meant to be, it's a, it's a, it's a limited time, but it feels like a long time kind of thing. And they've seen a third of mankind wiped out by all these terrible wars and plagues that are judgments by, from God himself. What's the result? They still don't repent. You would think that would get their attention. You would think these terrible things happening would shake them up and get their attention and they'd say, okay, finally I've had enough. Now I'm going to repent and turn back to God and give up my idolatrous ways and my immorality. But what happens? They did not repent of the works of their hands, and verse 21 repeats it, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You know, both halves of the Ten Commandments are represented there. They didn't repent of their false worship, and they didn't repent of their false living. And those two things go together. They always do. Idolatry, false worship, and immorality always go together. One always follows after and is connected to the other. Now, God's chastisements, uh, you know, it's been said, I don't know how the saying exactly goes, but uh, the same sun that softens uh, one thing hardens the clay. Well, the same chastisement upon God's elect brings what? Godly sorrow and repentance. The same chastisement upon upon the wicked, what often happens? They just get hardened more and more. What What do you think of when I mention that? Maybe the book of Exodus. Maybe the ten plagues. Think about the ten plagues upon Pharaoh. And remember God says, he echoes it in Romans 9 as well, for this purpose I have raised you up, the scripture says to Pharaoh, that I might exalt my name on the earth, that people might know that I'm the Lord, basically. Well, what, what did he do to Pharaoh? Well, he, he sent uh, Moses as his mouthpiece, Moses and Aaron, to get his people out of Egypt from the slavery in Egypt. And what, what happened? He, he sent ten plagues to get their attention. And, you know, we would like to think, well, all it would take would be one. God should send the first one, and that should be enough for Pharaoh to go, okay, whoa, time, time. You know, I know I'm the mightiest man on earth, but there's somebody mightier than me. I, I, no, you know, no mas. 
No, no more fight. Uh, go ahead and take your people and go. Ten plagues and what happens? And if you read the text, and I, I forget the exact number, but ten times, and about half the time or more, I think it's six out of ten, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let his people go. And the other half, it says Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. His heart was hard. How hard does your heart have to be to see the supernatural all in front of your face in so many ways? Of you know, And the prophet says, here's what's going to happen. And then it happened. Ten times. And he sort of let them go and then didn't let them go. And what finally happened? God destroyed him and his chariots in the Red Sea. You know, we often, people always say, you know, I believe in God. I would turn to Jesus if... God would peek through the clouds and say, hey, it's me, I'm here. If I could see a miraculous sign, then I'd finally repent of my sin. And then I would, no, they wouldn't. What did Jesus say in that parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Remember that parable? You have, uh, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time. You have the rich man who, who fared sumptuously. He lived in a gated palace. And you had Lazarus who was, you know, sores all over him and he didn't have any money and, and dogs are licking his sore. Just an awful looking, and not cute dogs, street dogs, you know. And they both die and what happens? Where's the rich man? He's in torment. Where's Lazarus? He's, it says he's in Abraham's bosom. He's in paradise. He's with the Lord. Now this is, it's a parable. He's not saying this actually was a real two people that happened. Uh, but what, what does the story say that, you know, the rich man who noticed that he's an important guy, his name's not even mentioned. Whose name do you hear? Lazarus, the man who was right with God. The rich man says, I've got brothers. I think it was five brothers. I've got five brothers, and they're just like me. And they're going to end up here. Send La- You know, you have to give him credit. If it was me, I'd have said, send me back. You know, <laughs> Send me back, and I'll just go tell. Send Lazarus to warn them. And what does he say? Even if a man were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. They have Moses. Let them listen to him. What's it mean? It means if someone hears the word of God and doesn't believe, even a miracle in front of their eyes won't do anything. What's the most powerful witness to an unbeliever that they'll ever hear or see? The word of God. The word of God never returns void. The word of God, by faith comes hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It, it sounds dumb. Uh, you know, you'll notice our parking lot's not full. Most churches don't have half the parking lot capacity of, of a softball field that we have out here. The word of God is not entertaining. The word of God is not getting the praise of the world. But the word of God is what saves sinners and sanctifies sinners. It's how God. It's how God calls people from death to life. Nothing else, no miracle, no, no ex, you know, ecstatic experience, no miracle, no anything else that someone could see is as powerful as the word of God by the work of the Spirit. No, no movie, people often have said with good intention, oh, this, this movie about Jesus is the greatest, most powerful evangelistic tool in the history of mankind. You know, if only the apostles had a movie theater. They had the word of God to turn the world upside down. And so this this picture at the end of, of Revelation chapter 9, like, that's the world outside of Christ, outside of God's mercy. And left, left to ourselves, the world left to themselves, outside of Christ, outside of his mercy, nothing will turn them from their wickedness and idolatry. 
That's, that's what this chapter tells us. Not even all these judgments of God, apart from his mercy and kindness and making the dead alive, will turn them from their course and turn them back to God. You know, may God use us as he has in, in many times in the past. He has used his word. He has brought revival. You know, if you, if you, if you're like me and sometimes you read the, well, I don't read the paper, but you see the news and you get discouraged and depressed about our country and where it's going, but think about Nineveh. God, I mean, it, it, you'd be hard pressed. Jonah wasn't nuts. You know, Jonah hated Nineveh for good reason. Right? Now, he wasn't right, but they were wicked. And God was going to use this wicked nation to chastise his own, his own people. That's why he didn't want to go. Because he knew God was going to show mercy. What did God do? They repented. Why'd they repent? Because they were better? No, God granted repentance. God is still the only one, and he does do it. He grants repentance and faith. So I hope this chapter, like the rest of the book, does not frighten you. I hope it is an encouragement to you if you know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, turn to him while there's time and have life in Christ's name. Let's pray.